0: White lights were burning hot on my face. I could feel the weight of a thousand eyes pressing down on my shoulders. I was beginning to sweat. My six-year-old little boy heart was skipping wild against my ribcage. Everyone was waiting for me to say something, but I'd completely forgotten the words. My mom volunteered me for the Christmas pageant at my church, and I was supposed to give the opening address. I only had one line, but they had this confidence that this six-year-old boy was going to be able to capture this crowd, captivate everyone in this tiny little phrase. Here's the line I had to say. I had to get up there, and this is, this is it. This is all I got to do. I just have to say, I'm not very tall. You're already laughing. <laughs> I'm not very tall, but I welcome you all. See what they did there? See how it rhymed? So they make it as easy as can be for this six-year-old boy to remember it. And so I'm practicing. I'm practicing for like this month leading up to it. So on Christmas Eve, my mom dresses me in my classic little boy formal gear. I've got my khaki pleated pants with the elastic waistband. I've got my clip-on tie. I have my bowl haircut bowling. And I have my navy blue blazer with the brass buttons that kind of makes you look like a junior naval captain. I am ready to go. And so I walk up on stage. I'm ready to deliver the line to enter everyone into this season of festivity. And right as I'm about to say it, the words just vanish from my head. And so now this six-year-old little kid starts to sway. And he starts to bite his lip. And he starts to be overcome with an emotion that as a six-year-old he wasn't very familiar with called fear. Fear. Then he starts to feel something else that he wasn't very familiar with, and it's called shame. And then he starts to feel embarrassed. And then he starts to feel like he's shrinking before everyone's eyes. He starts to feel stupider and stupider, and he knows that there's nothing he can do to change his circumstances. I stood there for what felt like an entire holiday season. It was probably about a minute And all of a sudden, right where you're sitting, this man stands up in the front row. And he begins walking up onto the stage. And this man is massive. As he takes a step onto the stage, it's like he blocks out all the lights. It's like this human eclipse is just (laughs) powering down towards me. And as soon as he gets kind of beyond the halo of lights, he takes me by the shoulders. His back is to the crowd. And he winks at me. And this man is my father. Now, my dad... Was about six foot four and about two hundred and forty pounds, and he had this just epically grizzled beard, like he looked like a resurrected Civil War general. I <laughs> mean, so it's like when he came into my room, it's like I was like, Oh my gosh, General Ulysses L- Grant just snuck into my room. This is really freaky. <laughs> my dad comes up onto the stage, he takes me by the shoulders and he winks. And then he comes to my side and he puts his arms around me, he gets down on his knees, he looks out at the entire crowd and he says, I'm not very tall but I welcome you all. And the whole crowd kind of melted. And even at six years old, I melted too, because I knew, I knew in that moment that my, my dad did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And it's like in that moment, my dad rescued me. I was six years old, and I'd always loved my dad, but that was the moment when my dad became my hero. So as often happens in Chicago... April rolls around and the snow begins to melt, and spring arrives. The month of May enters, and my parents have been invited to a party. My mom is going to go, she's going to drive and take my two sisters. My dad and I are going to hang back and catch up about a half an hour later, and so because this is the mid-80s, I did what most five- or six-year-old boys did. I sat down and I played Nintendo. So I am having this intimate exchange with Mario, and I'm bonding with Luigi. And over my shoulder, I hear my father walk into the kitchen. I hear the sound of the refrigerator door open and close. I look back just as he's sitting down in his chair and he sets a big case of beer on the table beside him. I'm playing Nintendo. And distant in my ear, I can hear that unmistakable sound of a beer can opening. I hear it pouring down my father's throat. I hear the can crumple and then I hear that unmistakable sound of another can opening. And two minutes later, I hear another, and then another, and another, and another. And, you know, 20 or 25 minutes later, I look back over my shoulder, and the entire cardboard box is empty. The table is covered in crushed beer cans. And now my six-foot-four, 240-pound father is stumbling towards me, slurring his words, saying things that he thinks make sense, but they make no sense at all to me. He reaches me, and he begins pawing Awkwardly at my shirt, trying to drag me onto my feet, trying to tell me that it's time to go. And in his mind, it makes sense, but he's too drunk for it to make sense to anyone else. Finally, he gets me onto my feet. He takes me outside. He uncomfortably stuffs me into the passenger side door, doesn't buckle my seatbelt. I was six years old. I knew I needed to do that on my own. And then my dad went around and he got behind the wheel and he backed out of the driveway. At the time, my family was living in, I guess, what you would call rural Illinois, and there was no moon that night, and there's no street lights way out there, and the, the roads are windy, and my dad is swerving all over the road. Typically, my dad would have been telling me jokes or singing songs on the radio, but this night, my dad wasn't doing that. All I felt was this sour storm of his breath kind of rushing into my nostrils with every passing mile, and finally, we reached a curve that with his dulled senses was just too sharp we flew off the road we went over a patch of grass we smashed into this wooden fence it just exploded into splinters in front of us and I closed my eyes and I hung on to my seatbelt. I was squeezing it so tight I thought my fingers might pop and as I opened my eyes I see that we are driving further and further into a cornfield I see these corn stalks flying by my window I close my eyes again we ram into a big patch of dirt the car stops, I open my eyes, and next door to me, the man that just months earlier had been my hero is now passed out on the steering wheel. And in that moment, my first thought was, what happened to my dad? What, what happened to this man that was my hero? Who, who is this individual next to me? It felt like the hero that I knew had been replaced by a total monster. And in the years following, really the decades following, I was trying to reconcile kind of these two snapshots of my life. And I kept asking myself the question, well, which one of these people, which one of these moments was actually my dad? And like I said, for years, I I, I feel like I couldn't figure it out. And what I finally realized and what I finally came to understand that my dad wasn't one or the other. He wasn't a hero or a monster. He was both. There was this inner conflict that was raging inside my dad all the time. And as people, we like to categorize everyone in a very black and white sort of way. Well, this person's good. This person's bad. This person goes on this side of the line. This person goes on this side of the line. But what I saw in my father is something that we probably all see when we turn on the news, when we look at celebrities, when we walk through our neighborhoods. We probably see it in our coworkers. We probably see it in our loved ones. We may even see it in ourselves that within us there is conflict raging all the time. We are marked with the thumbprints of good and the claws of evil. We are arsonists, we are architects, we burn things down, we build things up. We are heroes, we are monsters, and we see this not only in the world around us, but actually, if we were to open up a Bible And even read like the classic stories of some of these people that we kind of hold up on pedestals as like the examples to follow. You see that like one moment they're doing one thing and the next moment they're doing something that seems so opposite of who they just were. It's like they're loving, and then they're hateful. It's like you see it even in those characters in the Bible. And actually, there's a guy in the New Testament who, who kind of talks about this idea of inner conflict in a very, very beautiful way. His name is Paul, and Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. And we kind of, you know, in the Christian community, we'll hold this guy, Paul, up, and we're like, well, if anybody had it figured out other than Jesus, it's Paul. It's like, Jesus is one. Paul, you're like, 1A. Like, you really had it together. And Paul, in the book of Romans, he writes this, this letter and he's like breaking down all this like theology and unraveling these like mysteries of things that people don't understand. And as he writes, he's very composed and he seems so put together. And then he gets to Romans chapter seven. And you almost sense if you read this that his writing pace is starting to pick up. Like he's getting a little bit frantic. Like Paul is beginning to come a bit unglued. So he's like in his little Paul layer with his little quill or however it worked back. Then. He's got his lamb skin or whatever he wrote on. And he's writing, and all of a sudden Paul goes, you know, after all of this just composed, rich theology, Paul goes, I don't understand myself because all the things that I want to do, I don't do. And all the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing every single one of those things in the language that I'm going to use today, in the language of my most recent book. Paul basically says, I am a hero, I am a monster, and I don't know which one is going to come out when. It was true of Paul, it was true of my father, and it's certainly true of me. My name is Josh Reebok. I am originally from the Chicagoland area. If you were to stab me in the heart, I would bleed blue and orange. (laughs) I am married to a girl named Kristen. We now live in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm a writer by trade. And sometimes when I wake up, I believe in God. And then sometimes when I wake up, I wonder... If this is all just imaginary. And sometimes I pray, and I don't know where it comes from, but I just have this confidence that there is a God who is listening and who cares. And then other times when I pray, I feel like my prayers just hit the ceiling and fall like heavy stones back into my hands. Sometimes I am incredibly generous, and then sometimes moments later, I can be so profoundly self-absorbed and greedy. Sometimes I look in my wife's face and I see this big glowing smile across her cheeks and I know that I'm the one that put it there. And then other times I see the tears in her eyes and I know that I'm the one that put them there. Sometimes I objectify women. Sometimes I objectify men. I can be compassionate and judgmental. Sometimes I'll walk past a window and catch my reflection and I'll have these moments where I'm actually really excited to be me and I'm proud of who I am. And then sometimes I catch my reflection in the window and I feel like I would give any amount of money to be anybody else. There is conflict in me all the time. I'm a hero. I'm a monster. And for the rest of our time today, I would like to explore this with you, to do this. I'm gonna tell you a collection of short stories. Ever since I read The Canterbury Tales by William Chaucer as a junior in high school, I became a bit of a literary nerd, or as I like to refer it to as a literary stud. <laughs> <laughs> My wife never really bought that. <laughs> But I would like to tell you a collection of short stories. And the short, the beauty of short stories to me is you get kind of an independent idea. You talk about it, and then it's done. And then you talk about another idea, and it's done. You don't need to understand the first story to get the second. They're all independent. And yet all these stories I'm going to tell, both subtly and sometimes overtly, they all kind of explore in different ways this idea of the conflict raging in all of us. So the next story I would like to tell you is called The Never-Ending story. It is the story of a movie, actually, that came out in 1984. <laughs> and of course, the 80s, the 80s have given us such gems as the Muppets and George Michael. It is clearly Jesus's chosen generation of people. <laughs> I love the 80s. Don't judge me. But this movie, The Never-Ending Story, it's a very strange and bizarre movie, but just so we're all on the same page, I would like to try to give a synopsis of this film. Basically, it's about a world called Fantasia, and this world of Fantasia is this wild and rich and beautiful world. And in this world, all creatures, all races, all types of beings live in complete harmony. They function as one. There is just this beautiful sense of unity. And based on what I hear about what Soul City is longing to be, it, it, it mirrors kind of part of, of this dream that people had for Fantasia. But Things couldn't stay right in Fantasia. Because though all these people are living in this wonderful place, soon the world is invaded by this dark dark force called the nothing. And the nothing brings with it this sense of hatred and division. It turns people against one another. It starts to vacuum love and joy and dreams and passion out of this world. And pretty soon this entire planet becomes a place in crisis. So a council comes together. They gather and they say, we have got to find someone who can rescue our world and restore us back to what we once were. And this young boy named Atreyu volunteers. And they say, Atreyu, are you sure you're up for rescuing our entire world? And he says, I know I am. And they say, Atreyu, it's going to be very difficult. This journey you're going to have to go through. And he says, I'm willing to do it. And so this council sends Atreyu across all of Fantasia to rescue them. And while Atreyu is traveling across this wild and strange world, he faces a series of tests. At one point, he has to pass through a place called the Swamp of Sadness, where people drown and are suffocated by their own despair. Eventually, he reaches a place called the Southern Oracle. And the Southern Oracle is these, it's this pair of giant stone statues And Atreyu is going to have to run between them. And as he does, the statue is going to shoot these lasers down to try and annihilate him. And Atreyu has to rely not only on his agility, but maybe more importantly, his courage to carry him through. Now, as he's doing all this, there are two individuals watching him. They're kind of observing the entire thing. They're experiencing what a distance, what Atreyu is experiencing very intimately. It's an old man in this creature that I'm pretty sure is make-believe called a luck dragon. It basically looks like a big flying dog. His name is Falcor. So, if you're in the dog market, might I recommend the name Falcor? <laughs> so, these two individuals are watching Atreu. And with every test that he passes, they celebrate because they know that their world is that much closer to being redeemed. But when Atreu reaches the southern oracle, they get nervous. Atreyu backs up, he starts his run, and he sprints as fast as he can between these two stone statues. The lasers fire down, he dives forward, and they collide right behind him in his explosion. Atreyu stands up, and the two observers start celebrating, and they say, yes, this is great. And the luck dragon says, this is amazing, we're going to be saved, the worst is over, right? And the individual beside him says, no, 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 no. He's gone through the swamp of sadness. He's gone through the southern oracle. But the most frightening challenge is still awaiting Atreyu. And the luck dragon says, well, what, I mean, what can be scarier than a swamp where you drown in your own sadness? What can be scarier than lasers? What's, what's rougher than that? And the old man says at this final test, Atreyu is going to have to look in the mirror. And this mirror is going to show him who he really is. The luck dragon kind of you know, furrows his little luck dragon brow and says, wait, that's the test? Okay, he, he went through the swamp. He went through the laser. Now he's going to look in him. Oh, I'm, I'm going to look in the mirror. That's challenging. You know, that's the big test. That's not hard. And the old man looks at him and he says, that's what everybody thinks. That's what everyone thinks. But most people, when they look in this mirror, if they think they are kind, they find that they're actually cruel. Most people who look in this mirror, if they think they are brave, they find that they're actually cowards. Most people, when they look in this mirror, who think they're loving, find that they are actually hateful. And then he says this phrase. And this phrase, you know, like even even as a little kid, it kind of like haunted me. And I saw this movie for the first time almost 30 years ago, and it still haunts me decades later. the, The man looks at the luck dragon. He says, most people, when confronted with their true selves, run away screaming. Most people, when confronted with their true selves, not their Photoshop selves, not the version of ourselves that we trot out at parties where you know we want to put our best foot forward and give that just dynamic first impression not that fake version most people when confronted with their true selves they run away screaming i'm in a lot of environments different kinds of communities. Some would be described as Christian. Some would be, would, would be described otherwise. But oftentimes when I'm in these Christian communities, whether it's a conference or a church, there will be this moment where we talk about where God wants to take us, where God wants to take us in our lives. And oftentimes we talk about this in very geographic terms. God wants to take us to Egypt. God wants to take us to Africa. God wants to take us to inner city Los Angeles. And who is willing to go where God wants to take us? And it becomes this geographic conversation. And I certainly believe that in moments, God wants to take us around the planet. But the truth is for us in here, for a lot of us, God is not going to invite us to go halfway around the world. But there is some place that God invites every single one of us in here to go. And that's deep inside ourselves. One of the very few places God invites every single person to go is deep inside inside themselves. But the question is, are we willing to go? Are you willing to venture into all these hallways and closets and cabinets and caves within yourself that you have locked, that you have shut, that you have hidden? Are you willing to go there? Think of it this way, and this is a strange question, but I'm a strange guy, so sorry. (laughs) If God were to walk up to you today, to just somehow walk right up to you and say, hey, there's a place inside you that I'd like to take you. Where do you think he'd want to go? Maybe for some of us in here, God would want to take us into a lie about ourselves that we heard decades ago. It's like that, that voice, that moment, it's like it's playing like on a projector in our head all the time. Maybe that, maybe that moment is a moment when you were told you're a failure, when you're told you're worthless, when you're told you're not lovable, when you were told that you're only any good to anybody if you achieve or if you're successful. Maybe God would wanna take you into that moment, not to rub your face in your own pain, but to go into that place and destroy those lies with truth, and say, hey, I care about you. You matter. Would you be willing to go there? Maybe for some of us in here, the place God would want to take you is into a place of bitterness, into a wound. Maybe, maybe a, a loved one hurts you. Maybe, maybe you think God hurts you, and maybe God would want to take you into that place Again, not so, not so you have to deal with the swirly of your own pain, but so that God might breathe healing into that corner that you have hidden. Maybe God wants to take you into a habit, into something that you can't seem to shake free of. Maybe he wants to take you into a memory. Maybe he wants to take you into a destructive lifestyle or pattern. I can promise you, wherever God wants to take you, it is not to bring more darkness. It is to bring more life. God takes us into these tunnels in our hearts, not so that we would feel more shame, more guilt, but so that we might be set free, so that we might realize that the most beautiful person we can ever be is exactly who, who we are created to be. So that God might take us into these places and bloom joy out of the garden of scars that exists within us. Where might God want to take you? Would you be willing to go? Or will you run away screaming? The scariest place we will ever go is deep inside ourselves. Where does God want to take you? The next story I want to tell you is called Discarding the Truck. Six years ago, I was a pastor, and you may not know this, but it is possible to be a very bad pastor. <laughs> I, I feel like I demonstrated this theory right with such authority. It was really stunning. I was a pastor for five and a half years, and I, I eventually reached this point where I just felt restless. You know, sometimes you don't know where you want to go, what you want to do. You just know what you're doing and where you are isn't it. That's basically where I was. I felt this internal restlessness. And so, you know, as I became more and more discontent with being a pastor, I asked myself this question. And the question was, if I could do anything with my life, what would I do? The answer was obvious. Lead guitar for Guns N' Roses. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like Slash kind of, he's pretty good, I guess. So I was like, okay, well, if I could do two things, what would I do? So I was like, okay, I'm going a table, lead guitar for Guns N' Roses. I was like, if I could do anything with my life, what would I do? And the answer came actually pretty quickly. The answer was, I would be a writer. If I could do anything with my life, I would be a writer. And so I thought about it and I wrestled with it. I talked to a few people about it. And with the amazing encouragement of my incredible wife, I said, you know what, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna live the dream. I'm gonna pursue this thing. I'm gonna try to be a writer. So I quit my job. And as all this was going on, you know, the friends around me, the people that I knew, they were asking me a lot of questions, you know? Josh, can you read? Do you know how to spell? <laughs> What's a comma? You know, <laughs> you know. They're asking me all these like qualifying questions. But you want to know what the number one question I was asked was, especially amongst my Christian friends? The number one question is: This what God wants you to do? I hate that question. I I, I hate. I want to punch that question right in its question mark. I I just. <laughs> I hate that question so much because whenever I get asked that question, I feel compelled to lie. Is this what God wants you to do? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) The the sureness that I have is beyond all sureliness. God's, you know, I don't know about you. God sends me post-it notes. So like I know his penmanship. He puts hearts over his eyes. It's really helpful. I hate that question because I feel compelled to lie. And in that season, when I was going through this, I felt compelled to lie. Josh, is this what God wants you to do? My answer was, yes, it is. But inside, the best I could do was go, maybe. I hope so. I'm not sure. And all of this, in the midst of this dream being unhatched inside me, this fear began to collide with it. And the fear was, what if I'm wrong? What if this isn't what God wants me to do? What's going to happen? Am I going to not be able to provide for my family? Is my wife going to leave me? Is God going to be mad? Is he not going to listen to me anymore? Is he going to push me? What's what's going to happen if I'm wrong? Well, because I'm a writer, I don't know what else to do. So I have to process everything. <laughs> so I wrote a story to help get me through it and the story goes like this. In a cul-de-sac in the suburbs there are two houses. And at the first house, there's a young boy out in the backyard, and this boy has a brand new red, shiny toy fire truck. Like like most young boys, he would rather destroy his toy rather than play with it. So he starts smashing it with rocks and ramming it into a tree, when from inside the house, he hears his father calling him. Well, immediately the boy discards the truck and goes running into the house, and he runs into the dining room, and he says, Dad, I thought I heard you calling me. Where are you? And he can't find his dad, and so he runs into the kitchen, and he can't find his dad in the kitchen, and so he runs into the basement. He can't find his dad in the basement, and so he runs up the stairs shouting, Dad, I thought I heard you calling me, so I came running. Well, finally, the boy reaches his father's bedroom. He presses the door open, and there, sitting in that recliner that every father in history seems to own, is his dad. And he's reading the newspaper. The young boy runs up to his dad, and he pulls the newspaper down, and he says, Dad, I thought I heard you calling me, so I came running. The dad folds up the newspaper. He sets it aside. He picks the young boy up. He sets him on his lap, and then he slaps him across the face as hard as he can. And he says, don't you dare come running to me unless you're absolutely certain that I called you. Now two houses away, there's another little boy. And he's also out in the backyard. And he also has a brand new shiny toy fire truck. And like most young boys, he would rather destroy his toy rather than play with it. So he's smashing it with rocks and ramming it into the tree. When inside the house, he hears his dad calling him. The young boy discards the truck and he goes running into the house saying, Dad, I thought I heard you calling. Where are you? And he runs into the kitchen he runs into the dining room and he runs into the basement and he can't find his dad. Finally, he goes running up the stairs saying, Dad, I thought I heard you calling me. Where are you? He reaches his father's bedroom. He pushes the door open and there in the corner in that lazy boy chair that every father in history seems to have is his dad reading the newspaper. The young boy walks up to the newspaper. He pulls it down. He says, Dad, I thought I heard you calling me, so I came running. The dad folds up the newspaper, sets it aside. He picks the young boy up. He sets him on his lap. Then he pulls him into his chest, and he says, Son, I wasn't calling you, but the fact that you came running when you thought I was brings me so much joy. Who is God to you? Is God the kind of father that gets angry with us and punishes us when we come running and yet we're unable to discern his voice perfectly? Or do you believe in a God who finds so much joy in our desire to simply be near him? Who is God to you? Do you believe in a God whose greatest desire for us is that we would be able to discern his voice perfectly? Or do you believe in a God whose greatest desire for us is simply that we would desire him and that we would know that he desires to have us on his lap always. For me in that season of life, I had to remember and I had to reframe who God was to me. He's not a God who cripples me with fear. He's a God who sets me free. But the story is also meant to reframe something else. Oftentimes, and I'm sure you've noticed this, life can be a little bit uncertain. It can be a little bit foggy. Sometimes we're not sure what we should do. For some of you, you, might be in a time like that right now. Maybe you're in a relationship. Maybe there's a conflict. You're not sure how to navigate it. Maybe you feel like a relationship might be crumbling. A relationship might be starting, and you're not sure what the right way forward is. For some of you, maybe the fogginess of life is around a move, or it's around a career, or maybe it's even around this concept of faith. Regardless of what that uncertainty is, oftentimes the driving question when life is uncertain, the driving thing that moves us is the question, God, what do you want me to do? And it's a good question. There's a ton of value in that question, but I don't think it's the question that we should value most. Perhaps the greatest question we can ask when life is uncertain is not, God, what do you want me to do? But simply, God, do I long for you? God, I don't know what to do do I simply long to be with you? God, I'm not sure what you want, but do I simply long to be with you? When life is unclear, what do you want most? Is it God's clarity or God's company? Is it direction from God or simply God himself? I wanna be, I'm not, I'm not at all this guy yet, but I want to be the kind of man that in my life I simply run towards God even if I'm not sure if he's calling me because I have absolute certainty I have absolute certainty that I want to be on his lap and he wants to be there with me I'd like to tell you another story and actually I'm going to read you this one because it was too hard to memorize The story is called Kisses and Collapses. Behind the church, I kissed you with my eyes open. It was just so hard to believe that you were real, were you? It was night, and the air was hot, and the moon let us walk beneath her bright skirt, so we did. We walked on and on into forever, two tiny specks mingling with the stars, all of history, even angels, Crossing the street, you took my hand and we stopped, traffic stopped too, cars honking their horns, the angry shadows of people behind glass cursing and shaking their fists at us in such a hurry to arrive at places they didn't want to be. We didn't want to be anywhere else. The light turned green and horns kept honking and right there you told me that you loved me and this time I had to close my eyes. For some reason it hurt to hear. No, I wasn't imagining that you were someone else. I was imagining that I was someone else, someone who deserved you, someone who could be what you needed. Time rushed by against our cheek. We bought a home, and soon it collapsed, so we rebuilt it, and it collapsed again. I knelt in the dust and bent nails of our life together, and I cried. You bent down next to me, and you laughed. And said that we should find a place where homes can't collapse. Where is that? I had to know. You said that place is wherever we are. And then I cried again. In the rubble, I saw our collapse and you saw our foundation. Is there a difference? Soon our youth ran off. We became gray. We grew shorter. Life shrank around us and we didn't know how to stop it. Maybe that's why we fought. I shouted, you held your breath. I folded my arms, you combed your hair. Our faces turned red, but I kept my eyes open. I had to see your expression. Did you look at me the same as you did that night behind the church? After all these years and all these kisses and all these collapses, were you still real? And could you make me real too? Did I even want you to? I needed you to love me. I needed you to let me go, but you never did. Somehow you always smiled through your pain and wept over mine. And in the silent wake of our wars, you held me close and I felt safe, safe even from myself. I wanted to climb inside your chest, close the doors behind me and lock myself inside, hidden away within someone who cared for me. The end came more quickly than we thought it could. No one really believes in the end. But when it arrived for us, I asked it to give me one more minute with you, just one. Then I looked for a final time over our worn, sunken shoulder. Through every page that we wrote together, through every poem and every bruise, every kiss and every collapse, I inhaled each one. And when I reached the last page of our lives, I tore it out, folded it neatly and tucked it inside my lips. Then I leaned over and kissed you, whispering, here is our story. A thousand times I threw in the towel. A thousand times you picked it up and used it to wipe the quit from my eyes. In my experience, that's how love feels. That's how relationships feel. They're everything that I want. They're everything that terrifies me. They mend my madness. They drive me mad. They are the perfect blend of wonder and horror. It seems that this thing called love, maybe more than anything, exposes the inner conflict inside of all of us. And that, that is my experience, not only of the love between a parent and a child, or, or two lovers, or two friends. It is my experience that that is also what love looks like between me and God that sometimes I want to run into God's arms and be so close to Him, and other times I just want Him to leave me alone. There are times when I want to open my life to Him, and then there are times when I just want Him to back away. There are times when I trust Him so much, and there are times when I feel like He hurts me so badly. Oftentimes with God, I just want to throw in the towel, quit, and walk away, but what I find so moving And what I find so inspiring is that no matter how many times I throw in the towel with God, He is there every time to pick that towel up, wipe the quit from my eyes, and say, let's start again. I find it so inspiring to know that even when I want to stop fighting, God never stops fighting for me. If you are in this room, regardless of what you believe, regardless of if you know God, don't know God, have known him for 20 years, if you're mad at him, if you've wandered away from him, regardless of where you are, God is fighting for you. He does not fight for us based on what we believe. He fights for us because he loves us. If you are here, you can never throw in the towel enough times that God is not willing to pick it up again. He is fighting for you. But the question is, are we fighting for him? He is fighting for the love between us and him that we might experience the fullest life possible. But are we fighting for that love between us and him? And, and here's what I don't mean. I don't mean earning. I don't mean, are we trying to earn God's approval or impress him? What I mean is, are we fighting against The apathy and the self-absorption and the distractions that so often pry us away from this relationship that changes our lives. Are you fighting for the love between you and God? Maybe we could even expand that question and say, just in general, are you fighting for love? There's a million ways to define a life, but a great way to define it is to ask ourselves, what is my life a fight for? Is your life a fight for love? Maybe you're like me. Most of the time. Most of the time, my life is a fight for fame. It's to be the man. To be renowned. To have everyone think I'm wonderful. So maybe that's what your life is a fight for. Maybe, maybe your life is a fight for control. It's like you have, you have to be in control of your own life. You have to control everyone in your life. All the details, you have to move them across the chessboard of life into the exact positions you want them to be. Maybe your life is a fight for your reputation. Maybe your life is a fight for success. If you're a Christian in this room, a lot of times our life is a fight to be right, to prove other people wrong, to make sure everybody agrees with the long list of beliefs that we have. What is your life a fight for? That guy I mentioned earlier in the book of Romans, Paul, he wrote another letter later on. He was like a really into letter writing or something. I don't know. He wrote a lot of them. I don't know what was up with that, but whatever. We'll forgive him. And he writes this another letter it's called first corinthians and he kind of goes on and he's like if i travel the whole world and i do a lot of really good things and if i can untangle every single mystery there is to know if i can explain god to everyone if i am successful if i use my gifts he says if i do all that but i don't love paul says my life is noise all of that cannot make up for the absence of love. Paul says, my life, if that's what I'm about, my, t- my, my life is total noise. One of the greatest conflicts, the internal conflict that we will face is what our life is gonna be a fight for. And what Paul essentially says is, I can fight for a bunch of things that don't matter at all, but am I fighting for the thing that matters most? What's your life a fight for? I wanna tell you one more story, and then I'll be done and blow my nose. In John 15, Jesus is having dinner with 12 of his closest friends. There is wine because they like wine, and there is bread because they like bread. And between them, there are flames doing ballet between them. And Jesus looks into the eyes of his 12 friends, and he says, Hey, guys, I got a question for you. He says, Do you want to experience the fullest life possible? I mean, do you really want to live? I mean, do you want to exist? Or do you really, really want to live? Do you want the fullest measure of love and hope and honesty? Do you want want to completely flourish as a person? Do you want to become who you're born to be? Do you really want life? And they move their plates out of the way, and they lean in, and they say, yeah, we want that. And so Jesus says, okay, then here's what I want you to do. Abide in me. And one of these friends of Jesus leans over to another, and he says, "He said bye. <sighs> yeah, I think that's what he said. Do you have any idea what it the- is? No, I don't know. I don't know what it means. To <laughs> and so Jesus looks at them. He sees the confusion. He goes, all right, guys, sorry, I didn't mean to get all King James on you. <laughs> let me, let me, let me niv it up. Let me, let's niv it up. Let's just niv this out. <laughs> Bible humor. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus looks at these 24 eyes and he says, okay guys, if you really want to live, you remain in me. Did that, did that help? No, I, I still don't. <laughs> Jesus says these words, remain in me. And I have, to, I have to think that those 12 people sitting with him had no idea what he was talking about. I, I don't know what he was talking about. But fortunately... Google does. (laughs) So I Googled this. I Googled this word abide, this word remain. What does it mean? And what it actually means, it means to take up residence. So when Jesus looks at these 12 individuals, he says, take up residence in me. And the moment he says that, the clocks inside each of their heads start to turn. And one of these men sitting with Jesus says, okay, my residence, my residence, my residence is the place that I wake up every morning. And another one says, yeah, 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 that's good. We're getting a little brainstorming session here, just a little round table. And he says, and my residence is the place where I I rest my head every single night. And another one says, yeah, 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 in my residence, that's the place where when life is hard, and when life is painful, and when I feel like I'm not safe anywhere else, I know that I'm safe here to simply be. I don't have to be. Anything other than just me, I can be broken, I can grieve, I can weep, I can be that in my residence. And another one says, yeah, 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 and my my residence is the place where I celebrate and where I throw parties. And another one says, yeah, and my residence is the place that that I want every single person that I know to come into. And another one says, yeah, and my residence is the place that though I may wander away from it at times, I always come back. And then it starts to make sense to these 12 individuals. And Jesus says, if you really want to live, he says, you make me the thing that is on your mind and heart when you wake up in the morning. And you make me the last thoughts that you cling to as you drift off into sleep. And you make me the place that you come running when you are broken and when you are hurting And when you need a place to simply be embraced and you make me the place you come when you want to celebrate and you make me the place that you want to invite everyone around you and you make me the place that though you may wander at times that you always come back. Jesus looks into the faces and hearts of these 12 internally conflicted, heroic and monstrous individuals and he says, if you want to live, make me your home. He says, you make me your home. Have you done that? Jesus does not say, if you really want to live, come to church. He doesn't say, if you really want to live, get to know some pieces of the Bible. Jesus says, if you really want to live, make your home in me. Have you done that? Regardless of where you are at, regardless of where I am at, Jesus invites us to do that. He doesn't say, go get yourself figured out. Stop being so conflicted and then make your home in me. He says, no, 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 right now, wherever you are, no matter how conflicted, no matter how wounded, no matter how afraid, no matter how loud those monsters inside you might be screaming, you make your home in me. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much that you love us. God, thank you so much that you don't ask me to get my life together. Thank you so much that you simply invite all of us, as convoluted and as divided as our hearts might be, that you simply invite us to live with you, to make you our home, to be family. Jesus, I pray. Show us, show us what it would look like to take just a next step today, what that next step towards making you our home might be, that next step towards fighting for love might be. Show us what that next step towards, rather than pursuing clarity from you, that next step towards instead pursuing your company might be. Lord, for those of us that need to venture deep inside our hearts to allow you to lead us into some corners that we have stuffed away and tried to forget because we don't want to deal with the pain, because we don't want to deal with the fear, whatever it may be, Lord, give us the courage to take you by the hand and allow ourselves to be led there so that we might find freedom and hope and healing. Thank you for loving every single conflicted heart. Amen.